From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. About three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a stick and gave it to Jesus to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again and with a loud voice breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, truly this man was God's son. The word of the Lord. Museum guides at the Louvre in Paris have noticed a strange pattern. After standing before da Vinci's Mona Lisa, many people walk away perplexed or frustrated they seem underwhelmed. Why? Well, the Mona Lisa is not just the most famous painting in the world, it's also the most widely reproduced. In an odd twist, the very fame that leads to many copies makes it seem over-familiar. Yet people still buy the posters and the t-shirts because the fame of the picture has become more of a draw than the artwork itself. In fact, when the Mona Lisa was stolen several decades ago, still thousands would line up every day just to watch the blank space where it used to hang. It might be that we risk Jesus putting him in a similar fate as we begin this Holy Week. Jesus' fame may be taking our attention and our time away from seeing the real Jesus of this week, Anthony Griffith grew up in the rough neighborhoods on Chicago's south side. He was a stand-up comedian, and in the early 90s, he moved himself and his family to Los Angeles to seek fame and fortune. Within a week of moving to L.A., he received two momentous phone calls, the first from the talent coordinator of The Tonight Show, saying that they, he, they wanted him to appear. That's the holy grail for, for comedians. The other call was from their doctor, telling him that their two-year-old daughter's cancer had returned. He appeared on The Tonight Show and was a hit. They wanted him back. All the time, as his daughter's condition worsened, the talent coordinator on The Carson Show kept urging him to keep his material light. Don't make it dark or biting. He was working on material for a second appearance, all while his daughter was in the hospital reeling from this disease. I have to be a clown, he recalled, because I have to earn a living to keep my family afloat, and nobody wants a clown who's not funny. Suppressing all his true emotions. He is light, and he's funny, and the second appearance on The Tonight Show goes better than the first. On the same day that he's appearing for a third appearance 
on Carson's show. He gets a call from the doctor. The doctor tells him they've done all they can. There's nothing more to be done. He asks, how long? The doctor says his daughter has six weeks at most and that they should plan for that. Anthony Griffith thinks to himself, I had planned to buy my daughter a bicycle. I had planned to walk her to school on her first day of kindergarten. I would planned to buy her a dress for her first prom. I was planning a career that included The Tonight Show. How do you plan to buy a dress for your two-year-old daughter to be buried in? How do we plan for this week, this week of Jesus' passion? Everybody that week in Jerusalem long ago had plans. The powers that be had their plans. People like us back then, we had plans that I bet we thought were urgent plans. Jesus presumably had plans, but how do any of us plan for this? The religious and political authorities had plans. They always have plans to deal with the likes of Jesus. Usurp, ignore, snuff out if you must, that's the plan. T.E. Lawrence, better known as Lawrence of Arabia, reflected on the success and ultimate failure of his attempt to bring a measure of justice to those crushed under the imperialism of early last century when he said, we live many lives in those swirling campaigns, never sparing ourselves any good or evil. Yet when we had achieved and the new world dawned, the old men came out again and took from us our victory and remade it in the likeness of the former world they knew. We stammered that we had worked for a new heaven and a new earth and they thanked us kindly and went on their own way. The plans the authorities made early that week probably hardly even thought of Jesus. Usurp, ignore, snuff out if you must, but keep a lock on the world you know. How was Jesus such a threat to the world to which they held fast? Last week we focused on Gethsemane, We took a close look at vulnerable Jesus. In the Gospels, whenever there was someone vulnerable, Jesus was likely nearby. This week, as we draw ever nearer to Golgotha, one of the reasons Jesus ended up there was that he sought to upend every locked down world. Jesus not only stood with the vulnerable of the world, he would never leave their side. And that's a threat to the powers that be. I'm sure there were many around who advised Jesus not to go to Jerusalem, not to enter into that political maelstrom, but to stay in Galilee. Just stay safe, Jesus. Stay safe. Palm Sunday suggests Jesus rejected that advice. It was the spring of 1963 in Birmingham And the civil rights movement increasingly looked defeated. The powers that be had more jail space than the civil rights workers had people. But then one Sunday, reports historian Taylor Branch, 2,000 young people came out the doors of the new Pilgrim Baptist Church. 
just a little bit older than the kids who sang for us at the beginning of this service, and they prepared to march. The police were shocked. How much longer was this going to go on? How many more people were they going to have to arrest? The line of young people was five blocks long. As the marchers approached the line of police officers and dogs, the notorious Bull Connor walked out to confront them, shouting for the firefighters to turn on the hoses. The line of young people came close and closer and closer. Finally, face to face with Connor and the firefighters and the police. And then they just knelt down right before them and prayed. The Reverend Charles Billups stood and shouted, Turn on your water. Turn loose your dogs. We'll stand here till we die. After a few moments, Billups and the young people walked forward. And the hoses dropped. And the firefighters parted. What kind of faith does it take to nurture Christians of all ages to live like that? What kind of Savior are we following into this week? I'm sure we've all made plans. We've all made plans for this week. We always have plans. John McWhorter, a linguist at Columbia University, writes about path dependence Path dependence refers to something that seems normal or inevitable today, but began with a choice that made sense at a particular time in the past, but has survived despite the eclipse of justification for that choice. Does Holy Week give us any cause to change our plans? Years ago, at a time of great national unrest, not unlike now, Billy Graham was invited to be the Sunday preacher at Duke University Chapel. The week before Graham arrived, his office kept getting all these phone calls from the chapel office with urgent questions like, how many security is, is Dr. Graham bringing with him, and well, we need to augment that with some of our own people. Graham's office was assured that they were going to close the chapel three hours before the service and sweep it for bombs so Billy Graham didn't need to worry. Finally, a day or two before, the chaplain dutifully called Billy Graham himself, asking him what needs he had for his security. Dr. Graham replied, I have the Lord as my security. I plan to fly in Saturday afternoon and rent a car, and Sunday morning I'll drive to the chapel. It'll just be me. It seems that Billy Graham was determined to be a follower of a vulnerable Savior who entered a contentious city riding on a donkey. Who is the Savior? And what are his plans? When the band Arcade Fire won a Grammy for Album of the Year a few years ago, their lead singer came to the podium where a parade of egos had held forth all evening. Everybody expected a speech of triumph and self-indulgence. After all, the evening had already showcased Lady Gaga emerging from an egg, uh, a short-skirted Katy Perry swinging from the ceiling, and Gwyneth Paltrow dancing on a piano in stilettos. Instead, the band said, thank you. Thank you very much. Now we're going to go play a song because we love music. That was it.
Their plan, it seemed, was to do nothing except what they always did, to be who they always are. Perhaps we should watch Jesus, what he says and what he does, what he doesn't say and what he doesn't do before we make our plans for this week. Jesus doesn't say to Pilate, I'll be back, and I'm bringing a group with me. He doesn't say this isn't fair. He doesn't call out and call names at those who oppose him. In fact, Jesus doesn't say much. Look at the text. Jesus mostly is silent. What does Jesus do? Well, while others appear fearful about everything that's happening around them, Jesus does not react to the fear. In his poem, How to Hide Jesus, Steve Turner writes, there are people after Jesus, they've seen the signs, quick, let's hide him, let's think. Carpenter, fisherman's friend, disturber of religious comfort, let's award him a degree in theology. Let's put on a purple cassock, a position of respect. They'll never think of looking there. Let's think. His dialect may betray him. His tongue is of the masses. Let's teach him Latin. And 17th century English. They'll never listen to him then. Let's think. Humble. Man of sorrows. Nowhere to lay his head. We'll build a house for him. Somewhere far away from the poor. We'll fill it with brass and silence. It'll sure throw them off. There are people after Jesus. Quick, let's hide him. In 1903, the German poet Rilke enjoyed a correspondence with a young aspiring poet. He offered this advice. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves, then gradually Rilke suggests you will live into the answers. Perhaps more than anything else this week, in Jerusalem long ago, Jesus lived the answers of the consequences of God's radical, reckless, abundant love, lived out in vulnerability in the world where we prefer to make our own plans. Fred Beekner once said, you can hardly blame Pilate for washing his hands of Jesus. He asked so bloody much, this Jesus. Bloody is the word for it. What Jesus calls us to is the terrifying game of letting him enormously move us beyond all our tame ideas of him to do and be God only knows what which can be a very bloody business indeed if we do it right. Stephen Tobolowsky is a character actor who's appeared in over 200 movies and TV shows. Chances are you'd recognize him even if you've never heard of him. He played Sandy uh, Ryerson, a fired teacher on the TV show Glee. Anyone? No, okay. Uh, he played Ned, the crazed insurance agent, in the movie Groundhog Day. Two decades ago, he portrayed the leader of the Mississippi Ku Klux Klan in the movie Mississippi Burning. Filming on location in rural Mississippi for Tobolowsky's main scene, a Klan rally, 
They invited locals to serve as extras in the crowd, and reportedly half of the 2,000 extras used their actual Klan membership card as ID. The speech Tobolowsky was to give was to be in two parts. The first, just to lift up the joys of Mississippi living. The second was more racially charged. The plan was to use the crowd for the first part of the speech and then send them home and film the second part of the speech in close-up. They shot take after take after take of the first part. But in an unexpected thing that defied their plans, one time running through the speech, the director did not yell, cut, at the end of the first part. Tobolowsky, being well-trained, just kept on going into the second part of the speech, the racially charged, hateful, clan-laden part. The crowd reacted immediately, not in a bad way. They started yelling, you should run for governor. You know, tell it like it is. The filming was now stretching long into the early morning hours. After one cut, Tobolowsky was asked if he needed anything, and he asked if he could get some tea for his voice. One of the movie staffers yelled for craft services to get Mr. Tobolowsky some tea. Hey, they yelled, we need some tea for Mr. Tobolowsky. Well, the only person left in craft services in those early morning hours was a 13-year-old African-American boy named Joshua. The staffer yelled, hey, boy, didn't you hear me the first time? Get some tea for Mr. Tobolowsky. You could feel the hostility in the crowd. Finally, Joshua appeared. The staffer turned to Stephen Tobolowsky and said, Mr. Tobolowsky, what kind of tea would you like? And Tobolowsky said, Earl Grey. I guess, hey, boy, get Mr. Tobolowsky some Earl Grey tea now. The crowd already amped up by this speech, was even more on edge. Joshua started to make his way through the hostile crowd to get the tea. Stephen Tobolowsky called after him. Joshua stopped and turned around. Their eyes met. Joshua smiled. Joshua, I'm sorry. The crowd, filled with all these KKK extras, tightened around the 14-year-old employee blocking his way. Joshua stood there looking at all these men. He never said a word, but he held his ground. The air was so heavy. He took a few steps and then turned around and said to the actor, Mister, you keep on doing what you're doing. You're doing a really good job. Don't worry about me. I'm going to be fine. And at that, the boy turned around toward the crowd, and Stephen Tobolowsky watched 2,000 people part for this teenager to walk right through the middle of them. Later, Stephen Tobolowsky said, what I learned that night from that young man was that courage is nothing that Hollywood makes it out to be, bravado, kicking down doors, or blasting away at your enemy. Courage is a disciplined absence of fear. It is continuing on, just that, continuing on in the face of all the obstacles and all the plans put in our way. Jesus, in spite of all of our plans, ignoring our plans, ignoring the plans of the powers that be, 
Jesus focuses only on God's loving intention for the world. Because Jesus is so convinced that God's love conquers all. He just kept going. Jesus kept going. He kept going all the way to the cross. Trusting God to carry it all from there, to carry Jesus from there, to carry you from here. What are your plans for this week? Trusting God to carry every single one of us through anything and everything from here on.